You can remain seated tonight if you uh, want to find a place in the scripture to join me. This is going to be just a little bit different tonight, uh, but I will be drawing our main text from 2 Samuel chapter 13, and uh, we will be there through uh, chapters 13 through 15. Uh, that does not mean I'm going to preach all three chapters, so you can breathe easy tonight. Uh, I'm not going to preach forever this evening, but I feel like the Lord has helped me. Yesterday, um, Bishop and I were on our way home. Uh, we had made a very quick trip up to uh, Wisconsin. Uh, Brother Michael Yadonichek's father had passed away, so Bishop and I ran up to uh, be at that funeral. And on our way home, uh, we were somewhere on the west side of uh, northwest side of Indianapolis coming down 65 around 865 and uh, I heard something that pricked my heart as so often uh, it does and I told Bishop then I said I believe I'm gonna work something up on that I want something that's gonna touch our hearts and our minds and so what I'm gonna ask you to do tonight if you would just help me before we ever even get started is to completely submit yourself to the Word of God tonight and just say Lord Whatever you have for me in this place, I want to receive it. Could we just pray that right now? God, speak in this house. Lord, I believe you've spoken to my heart. I believe tonight, God, that you're going to speak in this place. I'm hungry to see you. God, I'm hungry to know you. I'm hungry to walk with you. I'm hungry, Lord, to be filled with your word. God, let unction rest on us in the pulpit. Let action rest on us in the pew. Let there be authority and power. Let your spirit Oh, God, move in a mighty way in this house from the eldest to the youngest, Lord, to our children. Let the Spirit of God rest on us and speak to us in the mighty name of Jesus. And let the church say amen. 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 I'd feel better right now if you'd just clap to the Lord and give him praise for what we feel. Hallelujah. Perhaps one of the most famous men that will ever be mentioned not only in the Bible but in biblical history period is known as uh, I feel like the greatest king certainly by power that's ever dwelled in Israel's name was David and David was kind of in the fight for his life as the previous king by the name of Saul was realizing that his anointing had lifted and now it was resting on David that he would lead the people and so because of this David was in uh, literally running for his life and he was exiled because of King Saul and he was dwelling at a place called Hebron and while he was living there in Hebron the scripture records to us it became very apparent by scripture that while at Hebron that David took at least six wives unto himself six different women to be his wives there in Hebron among his wives was the daughter of a man by the name of Talmai, who was the king of Gesher. Her name was Maaka. She bore David two children. Their names were Absalom and Tamar. And the best that we can tell at the time of the story of which I'm preaching tonight, Absalom was somewhere around 21 years old and Tamar was probably 18 or so. There's no doubt, no question when you read about them that they were very comely children, very beautiful children. They were certainly uh, fair to look upon, to behold, very handsome man and a beautiful woman. Uh, it was no secret that when everybody looked at them, uh, they were loved by all because of their beauty. Among his wives was another lady 
by the name of Ahinoam. And she was a Jezreelitess, is what the scripture said. And she bore David his very first son, whose name was Amnon. The unraveling of David's family continued with, uh, when with cunning counsel, Amnon and his friend, who uh, we know as Jonadab, began to plan something that certainly seems inconceivable in my mind as you read the scripture. When uh, Amnon was planning with his friend to rape his own half-sister Tamar, her beauty had just ravished him and there was nothing he could do about it. He uh, comes up with this scheme that he's going to be sick on his bed, fake his sickness and that she would come in to serve him and in the service of him laying there on the bed and her coming in to feed him. It's a horrible act that we see. And the day that this incestuous atrocity took place, Tamar was absolutely devastated. It, it was, it was uh, a game-changing moment for her. Her life would never be the same again. And the scripture tells us that Tamar was never given in marriage. As a matter of fact, uh, the Bible tells us that Amnon, after he had finished whatever his plan was with her, that he completely rejected her. Second Samuel, the 13th chapter and the 15th verse says to us, it's recorded that he hated her exceedingly so that the hatred he had for her was greater than the love that he had ever had for her. And Amnon looked at this woman who he had just raped and taken something precious from her. And he said to her, get up and get out of here. I don't want you in front of me. And he rejected her and he sent her out. It was a sad and apparent fact that she had to come to grips with in her life. Tamar would never be the keeper of a home. She would never cradle children in her caring arms to mother or to nurture them. She would never know what it felt like to give suck to her own child and give life and breathe life into that baby. And because of this ravishing act, it provoked Absalom to have a murderous spirit in his soul. The Bible tells us he was so angry that he was absolutely unequivocally ready to destroy and to murder his own half-brother Amnon because of what he had done. And Absalom certainly had complete faith in his father, the King David, that surely justice would prevail and that David would do something about it. But we see, however, as the narrative unfolds, that when David hears what Amnon has done to his own half-sister Tamar, that while David was angry, he never did a thing about it. As a matter of fact, if you read in the scripture, it'll tell you that two years after the fact that nothing had been done to bring recompense for this heinous act that this fool had brought upon his sister. Absalom watched his beautiful sister Tamar as she was ravished in humiliation. There was no relief for the anger that he had in his soul. It was an indignation that I'm sure had already surpassed a righteous indignation. It was pure hatred. He, it was vile. It was dark. He had watched someone who had done something wrong and had never paid the price. And so he began to become bitter because of how the king had not responded to someone else. And he was very frustrated. And in 2 Samuel 13 and the 23rd chapter, the scripture said that it came to pass after two full years that Absalom had sheep shears in Baal Hazor, which is beside Ephraim. 
And Absalom invited all the king's sons. He's beginning to work his plan. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, now thy servant hath sheep shears. Let the king, I beseech thee, and his servants go with thy servant. And the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all now go, lest we be chargeable unto thee. And he pressed him, howbeit he would not go, but blessed him. Then said Absalom, If not, I pray thee, let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said unto him, Why? Should he go with thee? But Absalom pressed him that he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Now Absalom had commanded his servants saying, Mark ye now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, smite Amnon, then kill him. Fear not, have not I commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. And the servants of Absalom did unto Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose. And every man got him upon his mule and fled. Finally, Absalom had the taste of sweet vengeance in his mouth. But little did he know this was only the beginning of sorrows. For verse 30 tells us the tidings that came to David saying... That all of his sons had been slain by Absalom. And the Bible said that David arose and he tore all of his garments and he laid himself upon the earth. And finally someone came in and had a little mercy on the heart of the king and said to him, O king, he said, do not let the king take this thing to heart to think that all the king's sons are dead. For only Amnon, thy son, is dead. And Absalom knew that even this alone in and of itself would not set well with his father. It would not settle well in his heart knowing that Absalom had destroyed Amnon, his brother. Absalom decided to take it into his own hands and to destroy the life of his brother. And when he knew that the king would be upset, the Bible said that that Absalom fled where he was and he went to Geshur where he could hide under the shadow of his grandfather's throne for his mother was the daughter of the king of Geshur. And so now he's in a comfortable place and he's hiding but there is by the Bible said turmoil in the heart of David and he's weeping not only at the loss of Amnon his one son for the deed that he had done but his heart is broken because his fair son Absalom has been missing and has uh, there's a void that's missing in his life because Absalom is not there and so now we've got a man by the name of Joab who is ever the commander He mounts up this uh, military-like campaign to confront David's continuous mourning over his son Absalom's absence. And the Bible said that he sought out uh, to meet with the wise woman of Tekoa. And they come up with this beautiful story. The wise woman of Tekoa comes and meets the king with her carefully crafted story and says to the king a story about her siblings and the problems of her family only to find out that it was really just a parable that she was telling him about his own family and just as it was with Nathan in the 12th chapter when he looked at him and told him the story of this man who had stolen a lamb and he was frustrated and Nathan looked at him and said this parable is about you and thou art the man 
and the wise woman of Tekoa began to speak with him about her own family but it wasn't the reality of her family it was as though she looked him in the eyes and said David I'm really talking to you about your family the problem is in your family and the scripture tells us that he was also snared by this story so much so that his heart was softened and when his heart began to soften it was turned back in the direction of Absalom and he beckoned for Absalom his beautiful son to return back to Jerusalem after being gone for three years but 2nd Samuel the 14th chapter and the 28th verse leads us to understand something and this tonight is where I feel like preaching to this church it was after three years of absence that Absalom was invited back to Jerusalem by his father he came back to Jerusalem and could have made everything right with David he came back to Jerusalem and could have done whatever needed to be done in order to see reconciliation happen but the 14th chapter and the 28th verse said that Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem and saw not the king's face stay with me yes the murder was tragic yes the rape was tragic but stay with me when I tell you tonight there is an atrocity unfolding right before your eyes. The king opens up his hand and said, go tell my boy to come back home. Go tell Absalom that I'm ready to receive him. And the Bible said that Absalom made it only as far as to make it back to the city of his father. But never one time did he take the time to walk through the gates of the palace and the home and the throne of where his father was. You know why? Because he learned how to exist in Jerusalem without seeing the face of his father. I'm afraid that some of us have come to a place in our walk with God that we can become busy in the city of God and never see the face of God I believe that we have come to a place in some of our walks with God that it's easy for us to get caught up in ministering to others we can walk in here and some of us preach and teach and be in our classrooms and in and out and be busy and working in the kingdom of God only to realize that another day has gone by and we have not seen the king's face we have sought him for a word to preach we sought him for a word to teach we have sought him for anointing we have sought him for unction because we want to function in the city of God only to know that we have never sought after his face you hear me Absalom when I tell you it's not enough to just come back to the city there is reconciliation beyond the gates of where you are there is reconciliation in the presence of the king you imagine after three years of allowing this to stir and stew and boil in his heart the enmity that he had the brokenness that had been caused and now two years later he sits within the reach of help he sits within the reach of restoration he sits within the reach of repentance and for two solid years he sits in a house in Jerusalem that his own father had provided for him knowing that restoration is just right outside this door but I refuse to walk in to my father because if I do I may have to repent and I may have to lay myself down on the line and say father Father, I did something wrong. You hear me tonight. When I tell you, you will never go wrong by doing the right thing. You will never go wrong by seeking the face of God. I'm reaching for somebody tonight that's learned how to live in Jerusalem, but you have not seen his face. 
my people, said the Chronicles. Second Chronicles 7.14. My people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and learn how to have good church. He said, let them learn how to pray. Let them humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Seek my face. Uh, I wonder how many of us have learned to function in our dysfunction and act like it doesn't exist. Not because we can't attain mercy, but because it's too expensive to walk into the king's presence and to just let it all be bare before the Lord. I don't expect this to be comfortable tonight, but you hear me when I tell you, we can never afford for prayer to be a dying art in the church. I don't care if you like it or not. Prayer is the key that unlocks the door. You hear me? There is nothing more important going on in this church before service than praying. There is nothing more important going on in this church. I don't care who you want to talk to. I don't care how valuable that conversation is. We got to touch God. We got to get a hold of the throne of God. We got to touch the heart of God. I don't want to walk in this place knowing that I walked into the city, but I did not see his face. I don't want to walk into this church knowing that I felt his presence and I knew he was close, but I never got close to him. I'm not saying this tonight to be ugly, and I'm not pointing fingers at anybody, but you hear me when I tell you. I still believe, in my, my opinion, I still believe that Thursday night is as important as Sunday morning and Sunday night. I do. I believe it. And, and, and I know some people like to be out on the fringe and say, well, that's not how I pray. Then you need to learn how. I, I, I don't, I, I'd rather just pray by myself. He didn't say if my person. He said if my people. There's something. you got to have a personal prayer life. you got to go into your own prayer closet. But there's something powerful that happens when we come together as the children of God and we start calling on the name of the Lord together. I'm not talking about just coming in and putting an iPod in and walking laps for an hour. I'm talking about if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray. You know why? We don't have any music on Thursday night. We don't have any preaching on Thursday night. There's no entertainment on Thursday night. But there is absolutely a angels that walk in and out of this house on Thursday night when the children of God are together praying and seeking God. I know it's hard for us to believe, but the, the most powerful outpouring of the Holy Ghost the first day in the book of Acts, the second chapter, they didn't have a band and they didn't have a preacher. The upper room was not an apostolic convention. It was a prayer room. I was a kid, I was 18 years old, I graduated high school, I could, I could tell you something, this was the year after my graduation, and uh, my dad and I were preaching a camp meeting together in Georgia, I could tell you something about that camp meeting, it was in Rome, Georgia, and I kind of got sweet on T.J. McCausland, and uh, the last day after I preached at that camp, I drove all the way home, because there was going to be a conference in Indianapolis. And I ain't going to tell you what she did to me when I drove all the way home to get to that conference in Indianapolis. But I can tell you this, I ended up eating with guys from the church. 
did. And I'm not bitter about it. Because I've got to buy her plenty of meals since then. Amen. Thank God it stuck. We, 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 we made it. Amen. She did go to the altar that night and act like she was praying, but she wasn't. I'm not looking up for a reason. Praise God. It's going to be lonely in my crib for a while. It's chasing an old hairy-legged boy from Mississippi. I said, that's sorry, girl. I drove all day long to get here. That's what happened. But listen, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to over-spiritualize this. At that camp meeting, there were some, some other folks that had come together from different states. And uh, I, we had preached. That was like the hottest camp I think I've ever preached in my life. It was... We were, we, we were in an old Gothic chapel, and you, if you've ever been to Georgia in the summer, man, it, I mean, it'll make you want to live right. It is, it is hot. We were in this old Gothic chapel on a, uh, in, in Rome, Georgia, on the college campus, and I was preaching the days, and uh, God really moved. And I, I remember the theme of that camp. I remember a lot about that camp. It was a very pivotal time in my life, but I got home from that camp meeting. I received a call. Uh, from Brother Mark Bishop, who I still love today like family in New Albany, Mississippi. And Brother Bishop called me, and I'd always loved them and thank God for them. They were a solid, uh, solid family, always uh, been connected to our family for at that time for probably 60 years. And uh, uh, Brother Bishop called. I, I remember where I was standing, Dad. He called, and uh, I was in my bedroom. You came and brought the phone to me, and Brother Bishop asked me, he said, uh, now, now, keep in mind, I'm 18 years old. I'm evangelizing a little bit, just kind of doing my thing, you know, still living at home, preaching out. And, and I get this call on the other line. He says, hey, we were just together at camp meeting. He said, I felt led to do something. I said, okay, what would you feel? He said, would you be willing to come to New Albany and be our youth pastor? And I was like, <laughs> I said, yes, sir. I'll do it. He said, well, we can have you work in our Christian school, help us with some music, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, sure. He said, we'll give you your own house here at the church. You can live in the parsonage. Give you a little check and take care of you and whatever. And I was like, all right, so I got a phone talk with my dad. And he's like, yeah, that'd, that'd be all right. And we didn't know it at the time. But Jody, my sister, was getting, getting married. And she got married on September the 11th, 1999. And the first day that Brother Bishop wanted me, I had to leave Anderson on September the 13th. So my mother and dad had both of us in the house. And from September 11th to the 13th, we were both gone. I left. And I got down to Mississippi. And I walked into that church. I preached uh, for Brother Mike Wilson on my way down. And I got to that church. And uh, Brother Bishop, I'll never forget being so overwhelmed, Dad. I felt like a fish out of water. I could cry right now thinking about it. I wasn't ready. I didn't think I was. God, God knew I was, but I didn't feel like I was ready. And I walked into the cafeteria that they, where they eat for the school. He said, I want you to meet your youth group. I said, yes, sir. I walked in there, and there was about 12 kids. I said, oh, God, what am I going to do? Babe, all the guys had the Mississippi do that all the guys were doing that you loved so much. I don't know what it was. It's long long swooping thing going on and I, I walked in there and it was literally it was just like this but brother bishop didn't mean anything else at all N nothing they took care of me like i was their own son but he goes 
Everybody, this is Brother Luke St. Clair from Anderson. He's here to work with our young people. And I uh, said he's going to be here at least a few months. We're going to see what God wants to do. He said, everybody, Brother Luke St. Clair. And I'm standing there, I'm like, how y'all doing? It's good to be here. Guess we better get to know each other. They were cold. It was unbelievable how cold they were. I didn't know what they'd been through. They were cold. There were some cold young people in there that night. Not all of them, but some just staring holes through me. They wanted to see what this was all about. Man, I didn't know what to do. I was overwhelmed. So I jumped in there. The next, next day we had school. I went over to the school and I got to working. And I couldn't just stand around. I said, I, I got to do something. You don't stand around if Raymond Bishop's around. You just hear me right now. Josh came down to visit me. My cousin Josh Malone came down to visit me. We were sitting up in the office with the pastor. Brother, Brother Raymond Bishop was the former pastor. He's the bishop. You got to watch him bishops. And uh, Bishop, Bishop, Bishop Raymond Bishop came walking by and saw the three of us. I'm talking about me, the pastor, and Josh Malone sitting in the office. And he came walking by and he looked in, he passed, and he stepped right back and looked back in the door. And he goes, what's going on in here? Brother Mark said, ah, we're just conferencing. He said, y'all need to take your conferencing somewhere else and get moving. I said, yes, sir, I'll do it right now. I didn't know whether to take him serious. If I was about to get shot, punched, I didn't know what was going on. But I knew I was scared to death. And I knew he was close friends with R.B. Bingham. And if he called R.B. Bingham and said, this grandson of yours is a lazy bum sitting down here in the office, I, I knew I was going to the mission field that day. I knew it. I told you, boy, I, I just hear it. So I'm working around the church, and I get over in this little side room. I know I'm taking some time here, but I'm, I'm going to help somebody. I'm working in this church, and, and, and I'm just trying to clean things up, pick things up. Bishop can tell you, uh, man, they, got, they had square footage everywhere. They used to have a full racquetball court in, in that church. When I was a kid, Dad played racquetball in their full gym. It's a really cool building. And uh, I found this one little room off the side of the platform where you could go off the back side of the platform, step down into this room, and it was full of junk. Had a bunch of chairs stacked up in there. And the other door, you'd walk right out on the main floor uh, on this side over here of the sanctuary. It's a big rectangle. You'd walk out, a little room over there, and you'd walk right out on the sanctuary floor. And I, I walked in that room. Oh, God, something got a hold of me. I'd already told God, I said, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing, so you're going to have to leave me and give me wisdom. And I walked in this room that was a wreck. It was piled up. And the Holy Ghost said, this is the room that's going to happen in, son. I said, I, I don't know, Lord. It's, it's dirty. I don't know what I should do. So I, I walked up to Brother Bishop's office because he was still conferencing. I said, Brother Bishop, would you be okay if I took the little room over there off the side of the sanctuary, cleaned everything out of it, Every service before we had church, if I get these young people to just meet me in there for a few minutes. And let's start praying before church. Man, you just have to know him. He's one of the sweetest guys that's ever walked in shoe leather. I mean that. Him, him and Mama Sandra took good care of me. He said, yeah, man, let's do it. Let's get it. You know, he was excited. That first service we had, that room was filled with a bunch of kids, 12 kids, 13 kids, whatever it was. They came in there. and uh, Man, I was praying by myself. I was like, God, I don't know what to do. But we need to have revival in New Albany, Mississippi. I said, God, I want your spirit to move. And I started listening behind me. I started hearing them kids. After a while, I could start naming them to you. None of you would know them. But I started hearing them behind me. Emily and 
After a while, I started hearing Debo start crying out, praying a little bit. As the weeks went, I started noticing that every service, that room get a little bit more full and a little bit more full. We'd been in there praying for about three or four weeks, maybe three weeks. When on one Sunday night, there was probably about 20 or 25 kids. We've already doubled these kids that have started showing up, wanting to know what's going on. We're standing in this prayer room. The Holy Ghost gets to move. And I, I open up my eyes and I turn around and there's drunk kids everywhere. And I'm not talking about on, on, on alcohol. I'm talking about there's drunk kids in this prayer room. They're laying around in, in here in this room speaking in tongues laid out on the floor. I came walking out of that little room in the sanctuary. I looked at Brother Bishop and said, I don't know what to do. All, all the kids are in it. I said, they're, they're drunk in the Holy Ghost in there. He said, let it go, man. The kids started coming out of that prayer room. We got, we got out in the open. The Holy Ghost went spreading across that church. And people began to weep and cry and praise God. Three months later, I, I, I'm going as fast as I can. Three months later. We had about 35, 36, 38 kids that were coming and gathering in there every service. And the Holy Ghost was moving on several occasions. We would have seasons like that where we'd come rolling out of that prayer room. And then right after that, I felt the Lord release me from there. And we didn't really understand it. And I, I tried to book my schedule back up and couldn't schedule anything on the field past January. And so I, I went back down to Brother Wilson's church to play uh, drums for a conference. And when I came off the platform, Kerry Jeffers came up to him and he said, bro, uh, you need to go to my office and call home. You need, you need to call home. Your dad's called. You need to call home. I'm thinking, oh, God, somebody's died, right? So I, I come off the drums, and I go back. To, everybody doing okay? Is this boring? Everybody okay? So, so I, I come off the platform, and, and I, I walk back there, and I, I went into Carrie's office, and I picked up the phone, and uh, I, I called home. My dad answered, and he told me he, when, he, when he said hello. I said, hey, Dad, what's going on? And this is what he said to me. He said, son, he said, how would you like to be the youth pastor of the First Pentecostal Church? He said, because tonight you were just voted in unanimous if you want to come home. The thoughts have left. They're moving to Bogalusa. And he said, tonight you were voted in to come home. I didn't know any more three months after being down there for three months than I knew when I left. Except that prayer works. That's all I knew. I said, Dad, I, I, I'll come home. We went through NYC and got, got all that taken care of. And in January, I believe it's January the 12th, I still got the picture. The night that I came home and all the young people gathered around me. They were, they were heartbroken. They just lost their youth pastor. They were all heartbroken, gathered around. And uh, we, we, had, we had a great little group started, little, little things going on there. And I said, Dad, would you mind if we take the kids downstairs? Brother Tony, it's in one of them rooms you've been working in down there on the left side of the hallway. I said, Dad, would it be all right with you if I take the kids down there before church? And before every service, we just pray a little while, spend a little time together. Oh, see, I'm pulling out all them youth pastor tricks here. Now, I got a new program, see. You understand what I'm saying? I got, had to get some new lights and some fog machines and all that. No, I said, Dad, would it be all right with you? If we'll just take them kids downstairs in every service, we'll just get in that little prayer room down there. We'll spend a little time in prayer. Can we make that a prayer room? He said, absolutely. Get down there and pray. And Bishop could tell you there were Sunday nights. Some of you could tell. After choir practice, we'd get down there and get to praying. And those kids would come stumbling up the stairs, come walking up into the sanctuary. I don't know how they did it, walking up two flights of stairs. But they'd come stumbling up them stairs, speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gave the utterance. And we'd walk down the aisles of that old sanctuary where my office is now. And the Holy Ghost would begin to move and my mother would never play the first note of music. Can I tell you right now that when music don't get the job done and when dancing and shouting don't get the job done there is something about seeking the face of God. Yeah. 
We have learned how to program things. We've learned how to saturate people's minds. We've learned how to be more creative than we've ever been. But I'm telling you right now, if we don't have one more small group launch, if we don't have one more fellowship group launch, if we don't have one more conference, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my faith. People don't understand that live their lives on the outside and just come together for entertainment. People don't understand that just gather in and want to have good church. They don't understand. But you hear me when I tell you there's something that rests on the shoulders of men and women when they'll get under the load of the kingdom of God and they'll begin to pray, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Let your kingdom come and your will be done in this church tonight as it is in heaven. There's something about it when we begin to open up our mouths and we begin to seek after the face of God it begins to change everything I'm here to preach to you tonight about learning to live in Jerusalem and never seeing the face of the king I'm telling you I thank God that he's given us the ability to sit down and counsel with people and talk with people and spend time with people and fellowship with people but a moment in prayer will do for you what no amount of counseling in the world will do for you Have people come say they want counseling with their marriage. And my, my, my question to them before I before I give them response is have y'all prayed together about this? No. Why would I counsel with you? Come on, somebody. Well, that, that's kind of rude, Pastor. I'm not saying it to be rude. I'm just saying you could get Gary Smalley or anybody. Get, Find anybody out there that's the best counselors in the world and it won't fix anything like it does if you'll get to get down on the floor in your house and find you a prayer closet somewhere and say, baby, get over here and we're going to get down on this floor together on our knees and we're going to seek the face of God until something moves. I, I don't know how to pray, pal. I really don't know how to pray. Listen, I've had people say that and then they go through a desperate season in their life. It's amazing how quick they learn. I really don't know how to pray. Yeah. They start losing something in their life. They start losing their job. It's they become prayer warriors immediately. I'm not that kind of person, Pastor. I'm not emotional. Yeah, you are. I've seen some of your favorite ball teams win and lose, and I've seen how you respond. I'm just not an emotional person. Oh, yes, you are. You let somebody you're rooting for kick a soccer goal or, or get a, uh, a touchdown in the end zone. And you're going to come alive. But you let it get a hold of you that somebody's children are lost and dying without God. And if somebody don't get a hold of him and seek his faith, I'm telling you tonight, we've got to seek the face of God. I, I don't know, Pastor. I can't pray two and three hours at a time. Then start with two and three minutes at a time. And let it break forth in your home. Let it break forth in your life. Watch God take you from five minutes to 50 minutes to an hour and 20 minutes, an hour and 30 minutes. I promise you tonight, it is a dangerous place to be, to dwell in Jerusalem and never see his face. I'm going to tell you all a secret tonight. I've had to deal with some pretty difficult people as a pastor. I know you can't believe that. I've had to deal with difficult people. To be quite honest, when I seek counsel and talk to the Lord, talk to my pastor, talk to other men of God, some of them look, their head and sh look at me, shake their head and say, 
Glad it's you. And I, listen, I'm, I'm being honest with you. And I, I'm probably being too transparent right here. But I've had to have meetings with God when there was nobody else in this church. And get with God. Sit down in this house right here in this room. Lay, lay on this floor right here. Get up there. Lay down. Say, God, I don't know what to do about this. So I'm giving it to you right now. I'm asking you, God, to fix this. I'm asking you to help this. Lord, I, I, I don't know where to go next. I don't know what to say. I don't want to do any damage in the kingdom of God. But you hear me when I tell you that I still believe that prayer can move mountains. I believe that prayer can soften hardened hearts. I believe that prayer can heal the minds and the broken spirits of people. Listen to what pastor's telling you tonight. There is no replacement for the power of prayer in Pentecost. Prayer is the most talked about thing in Pentecost and the least uh, exercised thing that we have. People go to conferences to learn how to pray, hear preaching on prayer, go home and their prayer life don't change a bit. Hear me tonight, church. We have got to be careful that we don't learn to live in a kingdom environment with whatever we need at our fingertips. I'm I'm preaching tonight. I'm preaching tonight to some young people who who have been spending your prayer time letting, letting some charismatic music YouTube playlist or something lead your prayer time. Shut that junk off for a little while. Come on, somebody. I got praying about this the other day, and I'm just, again, maybe, this is not a gripe session, but maybe I'm being too transparent. I told the Lord the other day, I said, Lord, I'm a little bit frustrated. I hadn't seen any young people drunk in the Holy Ghost in a while. But that's what happens when if you're not out by 730. My kids got school tomorrow. Hey, I'm going to tell you right now, I've seen kids get carried out of here. And when they wake up for school tomorrow morning to go to school, they still can't talk English. I want my kids to be raised in something like that. That don't happen with good programming. That don't happen because we have good services. It happens because mothers and fathers and grandfathers and saints of God will get down on their faith and say, God, I want my children to have an experience with you. Listen, we can't beg our kids to pray if we're not going to pray in front of them. I told Bishop tonight, I said, I'll probably never get through this. Probably never going to get to where I'm going tonight. But I want to show you what happens. He learns to live two years in Jerusalem, never seeing the face of the king. And and, and this this is so scary to me. And it ends up a couple more years later. Now we're seven years in. Two, Two years later, we're seven years in. And two years later, the scripture says that he begins to have a spirit of manipulation. He begins to manipulate the heart of his father, making David believe that he wants reconciliation. And really, he doesn't want reconciliation. There is an undertow that's going on in the kingdom. He doesn't, he doesn't want to seek his face anymore. He doesn't want to see the face of his father anymore. Now, he just wants power. And the Bible said that he stands at the gate and he steals the hearts of the people. Saying, why in the world would you go? Listen, listen to Pastor. Let me tell you. I'm going to show you what happens to people that live in the city but don't care about seeing his face. It's not too long till they start trying to tell other people that's the way. 
Carnal people will justify the lack of prayer in their lives. They'll justify the lack of intimacy in their lives. And after a while, they'll start telling other people, the king don't want to hear you. You know why he felt like that? Because he lived right outside the gate for two years and never saw the face of the king. If we're not careful, we're going to end up leading a generation into the era of believing that you can have the king's attention without going into his presence. Stole their hearts. It was a heart stealing spirit that got on a man who said, I can learn to live independently in this country without ever entering into the presence of the king. I know that Azusa Street, the fullness of truth was never revealed in that meeting because people stopped and spurned it and shut it down. They wanted the Holy Ghost power, but they didn't want the name. But do you know how the Holy Ghost was poured out at Azusa? Do you know how the Holy Ghost was poured out at Topeka? It didn't start with a concert. It started when a group of people got together and said, what are we going to do? Oh, Brother Seymour said, I don't know what else to do. Well, let's just sit down right here and let's start praying. And somebody got to rocking back and forth. And somebody joined in there with him and said, have your way, Lord. Have your way. God, whatever you want to do, do it. Listen to me. It'll still work today. If we'll find a way to get into the presence of the king. I don't. I know, Absalom, it doesn't feel like it's easy. I've never had a day in my life. Some are a little easier than others. But I've never had a day in my life that praying was easy. Ever. Once I get into prayer, it gets a little bit easier. But let me tell you something. Pastor gets sleepy just like y'all do in the mornings. I've had my prayer meetings where I'm wiping boogers out of my eyes and just trying to do whatever I got to do to stay awake. But there's something about it. If you'll stay through that flesh, if you'll stay in there for just a little while, there's something that begins to happen. It it felt like just a dry prayer meeting a few minutes ago. But when God sees that you're not satisfied until you touch him, until you touch the hem of his garment, something begins to happen that'll shake your very soul. And all of a sudden, tears will begin to stream out of your eyes. And heaven will come down to where you are living. Listen, there's reconciliation in the presence of the king. We can't. We cannot be a powerful church and be a prayerless church. And we can't let 15 others carry the load so that we can all have revival. It's going to mean something different to the people that are plugged in than it does the people that watched it happen. Come on now. I know this uh, is like Jesus. This is a hard saying. Even when his disciples got frustrated, they came to him, Elder. He said, we're not real sure what's wrong. We've seen you do it. And we've cast out devils with you. But today we tried and the devils wouldn't go. He said, because this kind, it only goes out. Mm. It only goes out with prayer and fasting. I told you this maybe a week or so ago. I'm going to tell you again. I've been asking God to shake this church. Hear me, I'm not saying this to be ugly. I love you folks more than you'll ever know. I'm telling you, my my family and I live, eat, breathe, sleep this church every day. There's, There's nothing else. We love this church. I love you precious people, but you hear me. We're too comfortable to be in the end times. 
I said we're too comfortable to be in the end times. Some of us have got so comfortable just coming back together. And I've been praying that God would rock your world. I've been praying that God would interrupt your sleep. I've been praying that God would wake you up in the morning and the first thing you want to do when you go brush your teeth and look in the mirror is you feel that bidding saying, get in here in the living room, let me talk to you. Come in here in this quiet room, let me talk to you. I've been asking God to wake some of you up. The other morning, and I'm not, I'm not patting myself on the back, I'm just telling you. The other, the other morning, Dad and I woke up, we stayed uh, with Brother Caples up, up in Waukegan after that funeral. And, and, and I woke up a little while before Bishop did and we slept in the same room. And, and, and I woke up and I felt that draw. I don't know, what, I don't know how to explain it. But I woke up and I felt that draw in my spirit. And I crawled out of the bed while my dad was sleeping. And I went in there to Brother Capel's office. And I just got down on the floor. And I laid down prostrate on the floor. And I began to cry out to God. Trying to keep from being loud and waking up my dad. But there was something hunger in me. Some kind of hunger. That morning, God, I don't care if it's still dark outside. I don't care if i got to drive home today. God, whatever you're trying to do in my life. I want you to do it because I don't want to just learn how to live in Jerusalem. And never see your faith. God, I don't want to preach and then myself become a castaway. I don't want to win thousands of people to you and get carnal in my spirit and let my flesh take control. I want to see your face. To be honest with you, church, at this point, I don't know what else I could say or what else I could do. So I'm opening this up to just say to you tonight. That God is calling us to a deeper place. I can't speak for any other church in this world. God hasn't called me to be the under shepherd at this point in my life of anything else. We don't have any daughter works going, nothing right now. But I'm the under shepherd of this church. The Lord is leading me as I lead this church. But I'm going to tell you that as for this church, if our music department falls apart, Brother Jordan, we don't have, it, we don't have, have any talent left. There will always be a prayer meeting in this church. There's always going to be a place for us to gather. There's always going to be a place for us to seek. There's always going to be a place for us to get together and seek the face of God. Oh, dear God, I wonder how in the world we're going to raise up a generation of prayer warriors that watch us uh, visit and frolic around and just enjoy talking to one another. You know what I'm looking for? I'm looking for kids that know what it's like to get their face on the carpet. And when they get up, there's residue that's left over from the tears and the snot that they've poured out because they've been pouring their hearts out before God. God, give us a generation of young people that know what it's like to not dwell in Jerusalem without being in your presence. God, give us a generation of people that won't just dance around the palace but never walk into the throne room. Give us young people that know what it feels like to touch the heart of God. Come on, dads. You want your kids to be prayer warriors? It's time to start leading. Well, when my kids get older, I'll show them. You better get in the habit right now. Holy Ghost. No, we're not all called to be pastors. We're not all called to be pastors. We're not all called to be singers. We're not all called to be musicians. But we're all called to seek His face. It's a humbling experience to humble yourself and pray and seek His face. 